Thanks for listening to coverage of the Society of Environmental Journalists Annual Conference 2019 in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thanks to all our members and supporters for making this possible. For more information on this and other sessions, look for the 2019 conference agenda at sej.org. Um, so this is um, a session on uh, the so-called insect apocalypse, which um, is, uh, I don't know if all of you read the New York Times piece that came out on that. And um, so since then, I've talked to some entomologists who say it's it's there's definitely some evidence in parts of the world that, that there have been some large insect declines, but um, we probably don't have enough data. We definitely don't have enough data to say that it's happening everywhere. Um, but uh, there are a lot of threats to insects, and um, they're very important to humans, as you all probably know. Um, they pollinate our food, and, um, and in some cases, there are economic um, have an economic impact on our lives. Um, so um, with that in mind, we have a panel of experts here, dip, well, researchers. Um, Chris, I know you're not an entomologist, not but um, <laughs> but he's done some really interesting insect that, uh, um, excuse me, research that um, relates to um, insects and climate change. So um, I'm just going to introduce everyone really quickly. And of course, I have a little out of order in my notes, but this is Robbie Hart, and um, he is assistant curator in high elevation ethnobotany, correct, at the Missouri Botanical Gardens. Um, and uh, if you haven't been to the gardens, they're really fantastic. So next time you're in St. Louis, check them out. Um, next, we have Dean Bowers. Um, she is department chair of ecology and environmental biology at the University of Colorado Boulder, which is my alma mater. So. And the insect collection. Yes, and the uh, yes curator of the insect collection there. Um, and then next we have Chris Funk, who is professor in the Department of Biology and director of the Global Biodiversity Center in the School of Global Environmental Sustainability at Colorado State. And lastly, we have Jessica Riken. Did I say that right? Rise with chicken. Ricken. <laughs> She's an entomologist and a consulting researcher at Denali National Park in Alaska. So thank you all so much for being here. And um, so I'd like to start out by maybe addressing the fact that there's still so much we don't know about the abundance and the type of insects in the world. Um, I've seen some statistics that say uh, there could be 30 million insects around the world, but we only know about a million, have identified about a million of them. And I thought maybe you could start, Jessica, by just addressing, since you're in Alaska, um, the situation there, um, how it's kind of unique in terms of insect life, um, and you know the challenge of trying to create even a baseline knowledge of what kinds of insect species we have in Alaska. Okay. Um, so I'm ooh, lucky enough to work as an entomologist in Denali National Park. And in general, the National Park Service hires very few entomologists, like less than a handful. So, um, And I work primarily with pollinators, so bees and another group of uh, charismatic flies, the surfid flies, which are mostly bee mimicking or wasp mimicking. 
um, to fool predators into thinking that they can sting. Um, and a lot of what I do in Denali and some of the other parks in Alaska is pretty basic inventory work, just trying to look at diversity, distribution, habitat, and floral associations of different pollinator species. And I would say... Um, in Alaska in general, we're still pretty much in the age of discovery. We're still trying to figure out who lives where, how many species we have. That probably started in the mid-1800s with the Russian nat uh, naturalists um, documenting and publishing their finds in Alaska, and it continues today. We're making new discoveries for Alaska year by year. Um, and we're lucky enough to have a great um, collection at the University of Alaska in Fairbanks. Um, and that's run by the curator, Derek Sykes, who's been there for about 13 years now and has done just a phenomenal job at <clears throat> gathering together all the data from the literature and also being on the ground and doing inventories around the state and getting all that information databased and online um, so it's accessible to everybody, which is a really key component of this um, work. And <clears throat> so um, to date, we've uh, discovered there's about... Um, 8,500 species of arthropods in Alaska. And that that's not a lot. That's a small fraction of what you'd find here in um, Colorado. But maybe not so surprising, because probably most of you know that most groups, as you move away from the equator, decrease in diversity. Um, but Alaska is also fairly interesting um, in its diversity from a biogeographical perspective in that a lot of Alaska was actually ice-free during the last glaciation. And so um, interior Alaska, parts of the western Yukon and eastern Siberia, which made up Beringia um, with the, when the Bering Land Bridge um, connected Asia and Alaska, um, the ice-free areas of Beringia provided a really nice refuge um, for a lot of plants, Arctic plants and animals. And so Alaska today, a pretty good component, about, about I think 370 species um, are known only from Alaska, so they're endemic. So it has a pretty high rate of endemism. And also there are quite a few species known from Europe and Asia that only are known in North America from Alaska because they came over on that land bridge. So there was a lot of dispersal back and forth. Um, so <clears throat> there are a lot of challenging, challenges to documenting biodiversity in Alaska as there is, as there is anywhere else. Um, in Alaska, the road system is not big, and so most of our parks are off the road system, so it's expensive, it's logistically complicated to get there. Of course, funding is always an issue for everyone. Um, in Alaska, we compete with a, lar a lot of large, charismatic furry creatures um, for research dollars. Um, and then I think a really global phenomenon that we share with everyone is what's been called the taxonomic impediment, where even if you get to a place, you've got it funded, you get there, it's really easy to collect a lot of specimens in a short amount of time. Insects, by and large, are pretty easy to collect. 
Um, but then you have to assign a name to all your specimens. You have to put species names on those. And for a lot of groups, there are a handful or fewer specialists that can do that for you. And of course, everyone else is asking them as well. And so there gets to be a pretty big backlog. So I've already heard two of the people on the panel here talking about how that's been an issue in their work. So. Um, DNA barcoding is certainly a tool that we're using more and more to help with that. And Derek, the curator, has put a lot of effort into building up the DNA barcode library um, in Alaska. So anyway, I think this inventory work is really important for a number of reasons. But one that puts some urgency on it is um, trying to establish baselines and create reference conditions for um, as in the face of climate change. I mean, Alaska is a place where we have lots of evidence of climate change, where warming temperature, temperatures are warming at much higher rates than the rest of the globe up at the higher latitudes. And <clears throat> so we need to be um, thinking about that in all the work that we do. Um, I made a couple notes here. Just a minute. Um, and so the, in the work that I do in Denali, not only are we doing this inventory work, we're also trying to design studies that will allow us to track changes over time because um, there's not a lot of historical data in, in Alaska that we can compare to. And so as we go along, establishing these baselines, we also want to create studies that will allow us to track change over time. So one of the studies that we've started in Denali to do that is looking at arthropod um, habitat associations along elevational gradients in the park. And this is a replicated, pretty structured study. So we're trying to see how arthropod communities change along elevation gradients in these three habitats, forest, shrub, and tundra. And that has relevance to climate change because um, we're seeing over time that tree line is moving upslope, um, both elevationally and northwards. Um, shrubs are encroaching into the tundra, and so tundra is really the habitat that's being affected and um, shrinking in size potentially. And so species that are strongly connected to tundra um, could also be facing some challenges. And we want to see generally how if arthropod ranges are tracking those shifts in habitat boundaries. Um, and in doing that, just preliminary analysis of the bee data suggests that the one habitat that really does have a pretty unique fauna of species that don't occur in other habitats is the tundra habitat. And the species among the bee fauna that are particularly tied to that habitat are members of this subgenus, so a subgroup of bumblebees. We have a lot of bumblebees in Alaska. They make up a big component of the bee fauna because they're so well adapted to, to cold places. Um, so the alpinobombus, we have five species, and they, with the exception of one species that 
occurs in the lower 48 that you could find here up above 8,000 feet. Those other species are really restricted to subarctic and arctic latitudes. And one of them is notable, uh, Bombus cluinensis. It was just described a few years ago. So bumblebees as a whole are pretty well in, known in North America. There's about 46, 48 species. Um, and this species was just described in 2016. The last species to be described before that was about 90 years um, previous to that. So um, it was kind of a big deal in the bumblebee world. Um, but this... <laughs> And this, this species is known now only from Denali and um, the Kluwani region in the Yukon Territory. Um, so kind of a disjunct distribution right now, but it's just because nobody's looked for it. Um, so those two places are separated by several hundred miles. I'm sure it occurs in other areas too. But anyway, that group, the Alpinobombus, um, has four sister species in the old world, so that live in Europe and Asia, and the IUCN has assessed those as all being vulnerable species with declining populations. And unfortunately for our five North American species, the IUCN can't even make an assessment because there's just too little known about their distributions in North America. So I would argue that's a group that we really need to find out more about and keep looking for them um, across North America. Um, there are lots of other ways that climate change can affect uh, pollinator communities in Alaska, including the timing um, of sort of the recurring cyclical events in life cycles of animals and plants. Um, and that's known as phenology. I'm sure a lot of you are familiar with that term. And we have a study right now that I don't have time to go into, but uh, across nine parks in Alaska where we're looking at the phenology of particular plants and their pollinators. Um, so I think... You know, there are some priorities for what we need to do, and those certainly include continuing to establish baselines and reference conditions, even though we're a little late to the game. Climate change has been going on for quite a while now in Alaska. We're also already seeing big differences in temperature. Um, we need to collaborate, share data. A lot of the species that we have in Alaska are circumpolar, so we can collaborate more with our circumpolar colleagues in Greenland and other areas. Um, and I think education is really also a key priority. For me, I'm a scientist working in a national park, and certainly a big part of our mission is also education and outreach. And so we do a lot of programs in Denali to try and get people who basically come to Denali to see the big five um, wolves, caribou, you know, you get the picture. Um, to, to have them even notice that there are other animals in the park. And my goal is to get bumblebees as the sixth big fur-bearing <laughs> creature that people will appreciate and come to see. And, you know, Dan Jansen has said in a recent piece in response to all these population declines that making a bioliterate population a bioliterate population is key to success for all the conservation me measures that we want to do to you know, help get around some of these biodiversity crises. And so I think that's, that's got to be a goal for all of us and certainly is for me. And, and I think you all play a big part in that as well. So, Wow, thanks, Jessica. That was great. Um, well, there's kind of a segue to Chris's research, talking about gradients and altitude, correct? Um, so he did uh, was part of a 
really interesting study in Rocky Mountain National Park and somewhere in Ecuador. Is that right? And um, and you you basically proved a theory that had first been put out there in the '60s. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. Do you want to talk about it? Sure. Okay. Hi. Uh, Thanks for uh, coming here today. And um, first off, I just want to say I really appreciate what all the environmental journalists are doing out there. It's super important to get the word out of our research and the messages that we can um, share. So first off, I'm not an entomologist. Um, I am a conservation geneticist. And what that means is that I use um, genetic theory and fancy new next generation sequencing approaches to address questions that are related to um, informing conservation decisions. Um, but I have had the fortune of working with a lot of great entomologists um, at CSU and elsewhere. And I'll share uh, a, a few little vignettes about that and what we've learned about um, insect conservation and more generally about climate change vulnerability and diversity. Um, so first off, even though now most of my research focuses on vertebrates, in particular I, I um, do a lot of research on amphibians, but also birds and mammals and fish. Um, when Right before I started graduate school, I um, was um, doing the graduate school circuit search looking for a, a good place for me. One of the universities I went to was University of Oregon. Um, and I met a professor there at the time whose name was Phil DeVries, and he's a butterfly expert and works on butterflies in the tropics. And actually, he was a protege of Dan Jansen. I'll get to Dan Jansen again. He comes up a lot. Um, but I decided I didn't want to go to graduate school there, but he did need a field assistant to go down to Ecuador and um, continue a project on diversity patterns in the Amazon rainforest of Ecuador. And essentially what he had done is set up a bunch of um, butterfly traps for a certain group of butterflies called nymphalids, which are mainly fruit feeders. And we would catch these butterflies each month, both in the understory and in the canopy and that study went on for over 10 years. And one thing that they learned is that there are a lot of rare species in the rainforest, and it takes many years to be able to detect all those. So you can do these rapid inventories where you go down for a week or two or three and collect everything you, you can find. Um, and you'll get an amazing number of uh, butterfly species. But what they found looking over years in both in the understory and the canopy is that if you look at the number of individuals you've caught and the number of species you have in your collection, it's called a, a species accumulation curve, it just keeps going up and up and up over the years. And it goes up and up and up even more in the canopy because that's such an unexplored realm. And what it means is that there's so many rare species um, that are still undescribed and undetected. So that's my uh, one foray into entomology um, for a year, which was a wonderful experience. And I've been going back to Ecuador ever since, as I'll, I'll mention next. Um, so the second little vignette is about a project that I was involved with that um, is sort of um, uh, finishing up now. We just published the main results last year in Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. And it all started with um, 
Dan Jansen again. So Dan Jansen uh, was a tropical ecologist, still is a tropical ecologist that does a lot of work in Costa Rica. And one of his many um, brilliant ideas he came up with came from an experience when he was working with ticos, so people who are from Costa Rica, they call them ticos. And he had been working with these Costa Ricans who were um, lived up in the capital in San Jose. And he took them down to the lowlands to do some field work with them. And you know, Dan Jansen having a great time catching butterflies, sweating, enjoying it. But these people from San Jose were dying. They could not take the heat. And he was like, that's weird. These people are from Costa Rica. How come they can't take the heat, but I can? And it actually led him to, to think more broadly of what, what is, what's going on here and what does this mean for biodiversity? And it led him to come up with this idea that he called um, a paper that he called Our Mountain Passes High in the Tropics, um, which is that if, if you live in the temperate zone, if you live in Colorado, as we experienced this week, you have to tolerate a super broad array of temperatures. Um, it's 75 degrees one day, and it's 10 degrees the next day. Um, so you have to have a really broad thermal tolerance. But if you live in the tropics along an elevational gradient, and say you're a resident of San Jose, then you only experience this narrow range of temperatures. You never really experience those hot temperatures. And so through evolutionary time, you may have a relatively narrow thermal breadth. And if you're in the lowlands of the tropics, you never experience any cold temperatures. And so once again, you probably have a really narrow thermal breadth. You cannot take those cold temperatures. And so this evolved into this hypothesis called the climatic variability hypothesis, which is simply that as you go from the tropics to northern or southern latitudes away from the tropics, that you're going to have a broader and broader thermal tolerance. And this has all sorts of implications for um, not only thermal tolerance itself, but it has implications for the evolution of biodiversity and um, speciation and for climate change vulnerability. And so um, my colleagues and I, including Leroy Poff, who's a stream ecologist here at CSU, Boris Kondratiev, who's a, a very well-respected entomologist, particularly with stream insects, and Cameron Gambor, who's a physiologist here at CSU, as well as some colleagues at Cornell and University of Nebraska, et cetera. We decided to write an NSF proposal to explore this phenomenon in stream insects. And lo and behold, we magically got funded. And so we spent six or seven years working on this. And we were looking at physiology of stream insects. We were looking at diversity patterns using DNA barcoding, for example, and phylogenetics so we can look at their evolutionary relationships. And they were also looking at patterns of gene flow and speciation rates. And long story short, what we found supported this climatic variability hypothesis where we found that stream insects in the tropics, particularly in Ecuador, once again, across the elevation grade of the Andes, they have a very narrow thermal breadth. So if a stream insect from um, tropical Andes goes up in elevation, it's quickly in a temperature that's way too cold for it. And if it goes down in elevation, it's quickly in a temperature that's too warm for it. Whereas in our own backyard here in Colorado, they have the insect stream insects have much broader thermal tolerances. They can tolerate a much broader array of temperatures. 
And so what this meant in terms of speciation, so the process of um, one species splitting into multiple species, is it suggested that in the tropics, species have to be very narrowly adapted to their temperature at a given elevational zone. And what that means is that they're going to diverge from populations that are higher or low elevation, and they'll speciate into different species over time, and you'll accumulate more and more species. And so sure enough, we found evidence for higher speciation rates based on coming up with evolutionary trees. We found higher diversity in most of the groups. So we're looking at mayflies, um, stoneflies, and caddisflies, the main um, groups of stream insects. And the other thing that was really important about this from the conservation angle is it suggested that for a given in temperature increase in the tropics compared to the temperate zone, that a tropical species would be more vulnerable because it's more sensitive to a given degree increase in temperature. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean by itself that tropical species are more vulnerable to climate change because you also have to keep in mind what we call exposure, which is the amount of temperature change they're going to experience. So as we just heard, in Alaska, they're going through really dramatic increases in temperature. The temperature is increasing in the tropics too, but not quite at the same rate. So vulnerability is a product of both the sensitivity, the tropical species being more s sensitive, but also the amount of temperature change. So the verdict's still out on the relative vulnerabilities of tropical versus temperate insects, but we do now have evidence that they're more sensitive in the tropics. So the last thing I want to say quickly is that um, in addition to increases in temperature um, with climate change, we also expect a lot more variability in temperature and precipitation. And here in Colorado, as we were just discussing, in 2013, there was a massive, what they called a 500-year flood that sat on top of the, the front range, basically from Boulder up to Wyoming. Um, and we got... Uh, basically our annual precipitation in about a week. And so the floods, were, the, the rivers were totally swollen, and there was a lot of loss of uh, property and life, of uh, human life in the Front Range. Um, but just by chance, we had sampled the very streams where the flood was like a year or two before, actually the, the preceding year. And so this gave us an opportunity to go back and resample those streams and see how these, this massive flood event, which is what we're going to expect more and more with climate change, how that had affected the stream insect biodiversity, and if it was a random subset of that biodiversity, or if we could predict which species fell out of the stream. And what we found is, sure enough, a lot of species got totally wiped out of streams, and it scaled to the severity of the floods in that given stream. And also, we could predict which ones were likely to um, be lost first. And there are these ones that were not very mobile, had certain types of life history traits that made them less mobile, less able to get out of the stream or hide behind a rock, et cetera. And it also had some element of randomness of the stream, the insects that just happened to have adult life stages outside the stream, when the flood occurred, they could quickly um, reproduce and recolonize those streams with insects. So it was a little bit of 
random chance of exactly when in the year that flood occurred, but also some some like history factors that um, were more predictive in which species um, fell out of the streams. So um, long story short, it looks like insects can be impacted by both increasing temperatures and increasing disturbance that we expect. But there's certainly um, a ton to learn about insects since they often get ignored. And I, I, I um, appreciate that as someone who studies vertebrates primarily. Great. Thanks, Chris. That was really interesting. I didn't realize there was a human connection to that um, tolerance for temperature. But it makes sense. Um, so we're going to stay in the mountains for a minute. And um, I'm going to have Robbie talk about um, his some of his work in the Himalayas um, looking at rhododendrons, which I had no idea grew in such abundance there. Um, it must be really beautiful. Um, but you're going to talk about that, some of your research on that and then some new research that you're working on. Thanks so much. Um, and uh, thanks, everyone, for being here. And thanks for the previous speakers, too, for setting up these themes that uh, I care about so much myself. Um, so I am also not an entomologist. Um, I don't directly study insects. But I work closely with organisms that uh, rely on insects and on which insects rely. And that are, those are flowering plants. Um, so I also study processes that uh, both of the previous speakers have talked about, um, which affect not only plants, but also animals and people, as they've described. So I'm really interested in the way that um, biological systems in general respond to especially warming, climate change in general, but especially warming. And the way that systems respond can happen in multiple dimensions that uh, Dr. Ricken already uh, mentioned um, and Dr. Funk uh, mentioned too. Um, so they can respond in space. So as everything gets warmer, organisms can move northwards into northern areas uh, deeper into Alaska. Um, they can also move upwards. Uh, so I work in mountains. Um, and one of the, my ongoing projects is studying how plant ranges uh, respond to ongoing warming by moving their uh, ranges upwards into mountains, into areas that were previously cooler in temperature. Um, but um, the response can also be uh, in the dimension of time. So uh, as Dr. Ricken also mentioned, um, especially for organisms for whom some events in their life history is more limiting than others, organisms that undergo uh, very special times in their seasonal life history, um, uh, they have the possibility of responding by delaying or advancing when they conduct that activity. So that can be the uh, emergence of an insect species. It could be um, what I study, which is the flowering of plant species. Um, but it could also be things that people do. Um, so when certain seasonal festivals are held, um, when certain crops are planted, all these things are elements of phenology or the timing of life history events. And um, so uh, a really common thing that we see, uh, much like moving upwards in elevation or upwards in latitude, is seasonal events getting earlier into the spring. In warmer years, uh, these events can happen earlier. But one of the big take-home messages of um, what I do, and I think um, everyone else here would agree, is that different organisms respond differently. And it might be if you're um, in 
tropical mountains versus temperate mountains, or just based on your species physiology, how your body works. And this can lead to the disconnection of communities. So in particular, if plants and insects respond to different cues, um, plants may be flowering, but be missing the insects that they rely on for pollination, so for their reproduction. Um, or insects can be present, but missing the flowers that they rely on as a food source or um, as a habitat or, or breeding places. Um, so uh, another issue then is how we address climate change, which is a really long-term process. So um, Dr. Ricken mentioned uh, forward-looking studies, setting baselines for future work. Uh, and that's something I'm also part of uh, in doing sort of standard ecology, making plots, uh, collecting temperature data, um, setting standards for future uh, collection of that same sort of data so that we can have long-term continuing projects that match the scale of climate change. Um, but uh, I also want to use sources that are sort of unusual for ecologists. Um, so two of these uh, are the collections that are held in natural history collections, museums, and herbaria, and um, the observations of indigenous people who actually live on the land and have been observing uh, certain elements of the landscape very closely throughout their lives and uh, um, have are part of cultural continuums that um, that pass along knowledge intergenerationally that can be about the environment. So um, you heard Dr. Ricken mention collection at Fairbanks and that Dr. Bowers is the curator of a collection here. Um, at the Missouri Botanic Garden that I'm part of, we have one of the biggest collections in the world of uh, preserved plant specimens. These are collected to use for identifying species, but they're also collected with lots of other information, and the collections go back more than a century um, in some very special collections, two or even three centuries. Um, so we can use these to gain inferences into how organisms responded to changing weather and to climate change in the past. Um, and one of my projects that you mentioned, I was working on rhododendrons, which are something that we plant in our gardens. Uh, and be for that reason, they're very heavily collected, especially in the Himalayas, where they're very diverse. And I used past collections of rhododendron specimens, now preserved in herbaria, to get a sense of how rhododendrons, different rhododendron species, have responded differently to climate change uh, across the last century. Um, again, leading to this general topic that I mentioned of uh, different species responding differently. Um, but then I also really, uh, um, in the rhododendron project and in others, really value talking to local people. So um, uh, in the case of the rhododendrons, doing interviews with uh, local indigenous people within Himalayan China led me to sort of re, uh, um, reconstruct my hypotheses about how rhododendrons were responding to climate and consider some other drivers. Um, and to better understand what my ecological data and my data from natural history collections was showing me. Um, and local people, uh, you know, an issue like the intersection in space and time of a flower and an insect might seem very abstract or like less relevant to people. But if the intersection of a flower and an insect in space and time creates honey and you rely on that honey at a household level to, um, uh, as a food or as uh, um, something you sell and as part of your livelihood or as a medicine or as something that is a strong medicine to the point of being a poison, um, that can be really important and people can uh, take very detailed observations into what's going on with it. Um, this is also the case for rhododendron. Uh, um, 
rhododendron actually is one of rhododendron honey was one of the earliest documented uh, uh, chemical weapons. Uh, it's poisonous and was intentionally left out by a Central Asian king for an invading Greek army. Um, and it's something that comes up again and again in the literature. Uh, and importantly, it's different based on the different species of rhododendron. Um, so this is something that uh, people who um, keep bees look at very closely across the Himalaya in areas where there are rhododendrons or indeed other plants. And it's the sort of complex social ecological system that can also be disrupted by, by climate change, just like purely biological systems. Wow, that's so interesting. Um, well, since we're talking about plants and insects, and that's your um, area as well, um, you're going to talk a little bit more about um, how invasive species and there's a connection to land fragmentation affect insects. And um, I'm not going to try and explain. I'll just hand it to you. <laughs> Thank you. Um, and thanks to all of you for coming. Um, I, I just want to reiterate what somebody else has said, is that you all translate what we do into things that non-scientists can understand. And your ability to do that and do that well is crucial for us to be able to communicate the importance of what we do to the public. So thank you for that. Um, so I'm interested in um, not only um, insects and the plants that they pollinate, but also insects and the plants that they eat. And my specialty is actually primarily butterflies and moths. Um, I've done some work on pollinators, which I'll talk about in a minute. But right now, my work on uh, butterflies deals with a plant that's been introduced into North America and actually introduced around the world that's native to Europe, narrow-leafed plantain, which is a common lawn weed. If you guys Google it, you will all recognize it. Mm -hmm. And an interesting thing about that plant is that it's been incorporated into the diet of many native North American herbivores. And so I and the collaborators that I work with are interested in how incorporating this novel plant into the diet of a native herbivore can affect not only its own behavior and ecology, but also its interaction with other organisms such as predators, parasites, and diseases. And what we found is that, and we've worked, looked at several different butterfly species that have added this plant to its diet, and we found, again, echoing what people have said here, the result is variable depending on the species that we're talking about. So my interest in insect-plant interactions also deals with how insects process the chemical compounds that plants uh, make. And so things that um, plants manufacture that make them taste in a particular way to us are really important chemicals for insects that are feeding on those plants. So the, um, the hot compounds that make horseradish taste the way that it tastes also have effects on insects that feed on horseradish. And likewise for lots of different groups of compounds. So I'm interested in insects that can not only tolerate these really wild compounds, some of which are really toxic and poisonous to humans, but also have the ability to store them in their own bodies and use them as a defense against predators, and also potentially as a defense against parasites and pathogens. And so in that context, I'm interested in how the chemistry 
of this introduced plant for an insect that's able to store chemical compounds from its host plants can then have effects on predators, parasites, and pathogens. And what we found is that it really varies among different species. So in a good thing that happens, we found that um, one species of butterfly, when it feeds on this plant, is able to store the compounds that it contains, which then makes it less vulnerable to a virus that attacks caterpillars. In contrast, in another species, when it incorporates this novel host plant into the diet, it makes that caterpillar and the resulting butterfly taste better to predators. <laughs> so it makes them yummier than if they're feeding on their native host plant. So the consequences of incorporating this new plant can vary dramatically from one species to another. And so that's the, um, one of the big projects that I'm working on now, is how these introduced plants can affect the ecology and evolution of native insect herbivores. Um, but then this was a wonderful introduction that Robbie gave about toxic nectar because I've been, uh, it turns out that, as he said, plants can put these really nasty compounds into their nectar. They're not just in their leaves or in their flowers, but they're, they're actually in their nectar. And so I've worked with a collaborator who is a bumblebee specialist where um, we found that if a bumblebee is infected by a pathogen that it self-medicates. It spends more time drinking nectar from plants that have higher concentrations of this compound than it does when it doesn't ha when it isn't infected by this pathogen. So the by drinking nectar that has this chemical in it, it helps the bumblebee survive the pathogen that it has. And so bumblebees, bumblebees are making decisions about how long to forage on an individual flower based on the chemical content of the nectar. And they change those decisions depending on whether they've been infected by this pathogen or not. And so I'm, um, so I'm really interested in this, the whole, the, the chemistry of these kinds of interactions. Then uh, another project is also related to the flood. This has been, you picked it, you didn't know how good an integrated group you picked, did you? Um, is we um, have been looking at also the consequences of this flood, but for pollinators, specifically for bees. And so fortuitously, again, uh, the collection manager of um, the entomology collection, I'm the curator of, Virginia Scott, happened to survey along one river, the St. Vrain River, in the year before the flood. The flood happened, and then she went back and surveyed in 2014, the year after the flood. And now I have a grad student who's going to survey again to look at recovery. But to emphasize one of the issues that's so important about insects is that putting a name on an insect, as has already been said, can be really hard. So only now, in 2019, have, can we say that all of the 17,000 bees that were collected in these two years have been identified. And so it's taken us that long because we have to send them out to experts um, who can 
can look at a group that's particularly difficult and tell us what species we actually have. And I think that's, that's also related to this whole question of the insect apocalypse. It's because there are so many insects that we just don't know what they are. So you can collect a little black beetle and you may think, if you collect 20 of them, you may think that they're all the same species, but in fact, if a specialist looks at them, there's way more than just one species. And that's something that um, is uh, unique to insects and certain other groups where we just don't have the expertise to identify them. So with birds and mammals and, and a lot of flowering plants, although not all of them, uh, we, you go out and you see a bird and you know what it is. And, but if you go out and collect an insect, you often have to bring it back to the lab, uh, to the museum, take a look at it and figure out what it actually is. And so I think that's a really, really, as, as Nancy pointed out, that's a really big issue for, um, for insects. Um, we've also, again, looking at pollinators, one of the uh, changes that's occurring, occurring globally is increased use of land for agriculture. And so one of the things that we've been looking at also is how increasing agriculture here in Colorado is affecting native bee communities. And one of the things that we found is that for farmers to plant, um, they can plant fields in mixtures of flowers or grasses. There's different kinds of mixtures that you can get. But if they plant they're making mixtures now that are specific for, for pollinators, that that can really help keep the diversity of pollinators high. And so that's a, another effect of having not all land being turned into agriculture. Thank you, Dean. Um, okay, let's open it up for questions. Um, I'll repeat your question or you can come up and use the mic. Okay, so the question is, what benchmarks would you like uh, scientists use or decision makers? Decision makers. Who hold the, purse strings. the people who hold the purse strings who make the money decisions. What species we should be collecting baseline information on, or just where the funding dollars should go? Okay. That we just don't have the funds to save every species. Okay, where should the funding dollars go to conserve species? I, th I think for insects, it's that's difficult for the reasons that we've all said. We just don't know, in, you know, insects. And there's actually been some research. One of the graduate students in my department was looking at primates, and um, there are some primates that are really rare. And his research suggested that well, maybe we shouldn't try and save all those really rare primates. Now. Some other primate conservationists might completely disagree with him, but knowing something about the genetics of these kinds of really small populations, um, those kinds of information can be important in that kind of decision making. So bringing scientists more into, knowledgeable scientists more into the realm of decision making, and our talking with more with decision makers, I think can help make those decisions. 
Um, I think also you probably heard everyone here talk about the importance of just basic inventory to understand what species are where and the importance of, of collections because sometimes it may take years or decades for a specialist to come along and really tell you what species is where. And it's impossible to really, well, no, it's not. It's difficult to really make informed decisions about prioritizing conservation if you don't know how many species are even there to start with. How could you possibly start to make any but the broadest strokes of conservation policy? Okay, the question is, do you all agree that there's an insect apocalypse going on and why or why not? Um, do I need to repeat that or did you? No, you're good. Okay. Um, so I think there's some very robust studies out there showing big declines in temperate systems, in Arctic systems, in tropical systems. Um, so I do believe there are, we're seeing big declines in a lot of groups. Um, I think every study needs to really be scrutinized because I think people are trying to jump on the bandwagon of this apocalypse or um, Armageddon and perhaps doing using data sets that aren't quite as robust or drawing conclusions that really aren't warranted. Um, so I think it's definitely something that needs to be on our radar and we need to be exploring it more and we need to be setting up studies that allow us to detect declines because... You know, a lot of entomologists, when they go out and they do inventories like I do, we're not, these declines are, you have to have abundance data or biomass data, and that's not something we typically pay that much attention to. We're more interested in what species are here because we're at such sort of baseline level. So um, I think getting more abundance data is also important as we move forward so we have some references to compare to. But there's also a lot of anecdotal evidence out there for a lot of entomologists that don't have the hard data that, that they are seeing those kinds of declines. But um, I don't know if that answered your question. but. So I think that the terminology that's been used is really sensationalizing this whole issue. It's very clear that there, we know there's insect species that have gone extinct. There's insect species that have become rare. However, using terms like insectageddon and um, the insect apocalypse, I think, really take the attention away from the kinds of things that need to be done, which we've all talked about. We need to use museum collections. We need to continue to inventory. And I think that um, that having using these sensational terms and saying that in 50 years, 40% of insects will disappear from this earth really may make people think more about insects than they have in the past, but I think takes away from um, understanding, trying to understand what's actually happening. And so some of the studies that have been done have been criticized for a variety of different reasons, and you may all have, have read some of these. Um, but um, I, I think that it's imperative that if we're talking about insects, that entomologists and uh, evolutionary biologists and ecologists who work on insects, maybe only occasionally, really, you know, get into this uh, this whole argument and let us look at what's really happening over time. I mean, the 
the study that um, you talked about, about the butterflies, a really nice thing about that is that you don't have to kill the butterflies to identify them. So one of the issue in some of some survey methodologies is that you collect those insects and you have to kill them all. One, because you can't always identify them unless you can bring them back to a museum and look at them. But also one of the really high profile papers was basically all the insects were collected in ethanol. They took them back to the lab and they weighed them and they had, you know, 55 kilograms of insects. But that was the only way that they could get any kind of a sense of what's going on. So I think we really need to be careful in what we say and what we focus our attention on. Sorry, I had that was my little rant there. <laughs> Just oh, here. Oh, sorry. There's a close oh one. yeah, there we go. <laughs> Look. Right in front of me. Um, I'm not entomologist, and so I can't speak specifically to the case of insects, but in the amphibian world, we went through a very similar thing about, what year is it? <laughs> Almost 30 years ago. So it was late 80s, early 90s. All these herpetologists came together at their annual meetings, and everyone's telling these stories about how they're not finding their favorite species at their study site. And there's all these anecdotes of declines, and it seems like that's kind of where the entomology community is at right now. And what fortunately happened, a lot of leaders in the field organized the community and said, okay, we need to do proper monitoring and proper quantitatively sound um, estimates of abundance and change through time in order to figure this out. And sure enough, within five, definitely 10 years, it was really clear and well-documented that there were really severe amphibian declines. So I hope that's what happens in the entomology community. More questions? Sure. So the question was about the impact of invasive bees on native populations. Well, I'm, I'm going to say something about bees because um, most of you probably know that the honeybee is an invasive species. Okay, it, the honeybee is not native to North America, and honeybees have displaced a lot of native species. So we already know that that is occurring. Uh, I'm not familiar with this particular species. I don't know what, if it's a generalist, if it's a lot of flowers, it may not be important to agriculture, but a lot of uh, native bees aren't important to agriculture, but they're crucial for native plant species. So, um, so it would, I would need to know more about its biology before I could say anything about that particular species. But we, we do know from, from work on honeybees that honeybees do displace native species. Uh, I have to confess, I didn't know honeybees were invasive species. Um, okay, who has another question? So the question is, is there a role for citizen science to help uh, scientists gather more information on insects? Um, I would say absolutely. And um, 
especially in entomology where a large part of doing inventory work is sampling insects. Um, and you can do that in ways that require little, very little skill or background. Um, in my work, when we try to sample pollinators, we put out little colored bowls of soapy water. Um, and I've used citizen scientists a lot to help me in that effort because we can spread a lot more territory doing that and um, and their role is is going out putting the bowls out collecting the bees and bringing them back to me so we're not relying them to do you know to identify bees or anything like that um, so I think that's one great role citizen scientists can play and there are countless other examples yeah, and I think iNaturalist is a great example of a citizen science platform that really engages uh, experts at all sorts of levels of expertise, uh, welcomes them into the community, and then has them uh, verify and check the, um, the sorts of data they're collecting. Um, another one that does that for phenology, which again is seasonal um, timing, is the National Phenology Network. Um, that does a really good job of marrying very robust science and statistical techniques with um, a really broad range of observers. And phenology is something that's really amenable to this. The earliest phenology records, um, some of the early phenology records were citizen scientists, amateur naturalists. There's been great work done on observations that Henry Thoreau took. Um, and of course, that grades right into indigenous and traditional knowledge, too, because we're, we're all citizens. More questions? I think that's a really good question. And um, biologists are often very fond of um, talking about things in sort of not broad general terms, but um, trying to make things as general as possible so they can be applied to other people's systems and so that we can predict about the future. Um, one of these is the disconnect of plants and pollinators, which it's easy for us to model, easy for us to sort of predict what we think we'll see. It's very hard to find examples of uh, extinctions or even population declines that have been caused by a, a disjunct of plants and pollinators. In fact, what we're learning is these systems might be a lot more flexible than we thought they were and that extreme specialists are less common than we thought. It doesn't mean that overall theory is, isn't without value and isn't very worrying, but it's actually very hard to find those, um, those actual concrete examples of things that have happened, which again, I would say probably makes the, that direct monitoring and the sort of experimental work that Chris was talking about very important. Anyone else? Questions? Okay, the question is, um, are journalists just focusing on the most obvious species? And what other um, areas should we be looking at? Or would you like us to look at? Um, there's definitely some really interesting uh, potential clashes of humans and insects along the horizon with climate change. So I work a lot in the Andes in northwestern South America. And I spent it, um, my wife's family is Colombian. And I did a sabbatical there. And one thing they're thinking about is um, the increase in elevation of mosquitoes that are vectors for um, vector-borne diseases like malaria. And so in the Andes, probably for no accident, most of the people live at high elevations above the disease line where those nasty tropical diseases. And those are creeping up all the time. And if they hit centers like Bogota with 10 million people or Quito with 3 million people, um, 
that's a story that I think um, people would be interested in hearing about. So that's sort of like the, the scary insect story, but it's just an example of these elevational shifts and, and one reason why people should care. I mean, I'd say almost any story that somehow celebrates the diversity that people have no idea exists in the insect world. I mean, even a story about bees, most people, if you ask them, you know, how many bees are there in the U.S., they'll immediately think of a honeybee that's not even native to North America. They might have heard of a few bumblebees, but if, you know, if you told them that there are probably close to 4,000 species in North America, they'd be shocked. And, and then if you could go further than just talking numbers and actually explain what some of these bees do and where they live, and, and not just bees, but any group, I think, I think just people have very little knowledge of the diversity that's out there. And you're right, they hear about the pest species or annoying species or, you know, a few monarchs or, or other things. So, I, you know, I just think just educating people more about the diversity that's out there in so many groups that they haven't heard of before. Sure. So I think the question is, I don't know if you're asking the journalists or the scientists, but if we, when we're talking about some of these big issues um, or the more megafauna, if you can bring in the role of insects as well? Well, I, I think that that's one thing that this insectageddon, if you will, has done. And I think also the, the interest in pollinators. The interest in pollinators has increased dramatically and, and not just... <clears throat> excuse me, honeybees, but an acknowledgement that about a lot of other bees, bumblebees are the charismatic microfauna of the insect world, I would say, and or one of those groups. And But but now people are really thinking more about, about other groups of bees, and I think that that has really raised the awareness of communities of people about the importance of, of pollinators because they have a very clear humans have a very clear need for pollinators. They pollinate a lot of the food that we eat. And I think that has done a lot to raise the awareness of um, communities about the importance of insects. Okay, so the question is, are there any other Norway rat type species in the insect world that are increasing as others are dying out? Well, one problem species is bark beetles. And so bark beetles are a serious problem in the Western US, and there's a, several, a lot of different species, and most of them are native. And so that's one species that has been showing population level increases uh, across the um, North America. <laughs> so the question is, uh, I guess, raising insects for human consumption. And I think I read that sometimes you make cookies for your students with mealworm flour or something. So I'll have you. Um, well, the, um, well you, in Western cultures, insects are considered disgusting, and the idea of eating them is horrific to most of us. But in non-Western cultures, that's completely not the case. Um, the, uh, there's a lot of small startup companies that are starting to make uh, protein bars that use cricket flour, uh, 
that, that's that's the main one. Some of the uh, we had a little taste test in my entomology class of some of these, and some of them were pretty yummy, and some of them weren't so great. Um, but I think it was the flowers that the the, the flavors that they added. The big culturing um, is mealworms, crickets, and black soldier flies. Those are sort of the three main species that are being done now. The black soldier flies are being used for animal food. Um, crickets and mealworms are being used for to make high-protein flour. And you can incorporate cricket flour into pretty much any recipe, and no one can tell that it's in there and it increases the because I've test done a taste blind taste test brownies made with cricket flour versus brownies made with regular flour in my entomology class no one can tell the difference and so that can dramatically increase the protein content of the food that you add it to it's also very expensive so it's right now it's an expensive protein for human consumption but I think it is something that would be possible in the future. So are there going to be consequences, negative consequences of that? Well, we already grow honeybees in a similar kind of way. You know, we protect honeybees and raise them, artificially inseminate them to make sure their genetics are right. Um, and so, so that's already being done with honeybees. And I think that at this point, I haven't seen any negative consequences. I've seen positive things about this move towards trying to incorporate insects into the diet of Western cultures. But it, should it go out of control, I suppose there could potentially be issues. But it's a small enough enterprise right now that, that I don't think that's really been seen. And there's a lot, there's a journal, there's been books written about, um, you know, insects in the human diet. And so there's a lot of really interesting research that's been going on about it. And not just for humans, for um, food for cattle, for example, or chickens. Um, we probably have time for one last question, if there's anybody who's got a burning question. Okay, great. Well, thank you all so much. This is a wonderful panel. I really appreciate it.